Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. A few weeks ago, I promised you that there would be some surprises this month. This is our crowdfunding month. This is the time of year when we do everything that we can to convince you to become a Canada Land supporter. And so we remind you of everything, of all of the stories that we've told in the last year that we think deserve your support. And we talk about all of the things that we would like to do in the coming year if we get enough support or if we get enough of our existing supporters to increase their support. But we also try to do a little bit better than that. We try to prove it by bringing you, during this month, some projects that really show what we're capable of. And we're going to do that today. We have been working now for over a year on a brand new long-form series. It's called The Newfoundlander, and it's by award-winning journalist Justin Brake. And I got to tell you, I find myself at a bit of a loss as to how to introduce this story and, and set it up for you. It's the kind of story that I think is best left alone to just sort of tell itself. What I will say is that it's a big decision to invest in a story and and put a year of work from a lot of different people into bringing it to life. And the reasons why I decided to do that with this story, I think that they're the same reasons why a lot of people would have passed on this one. I mean, this is a story that just does not fit into any recognizable genre. This is a story that every time I felt like I knew where the story was going and what kind of a story it was, it kind of surprised me and and became a different kind of story entirely. It's also the kind of story that is so incredibly specific, but also has implications for thousands and thousands of people. It will likely upset a lot of those people, but it contains truths that really have not been shared anywhere else. And I guess more than anything, 
It's the kind of story where I just had to know how it all ended. It's the kind of story that I just don't think would be told anywhere else but by Canada Land. So today is chapter one, and we will be releasing subsequent chapters of The Newfoundlander each week. But if you are a Canada Land supporter, or if you become one right now, you can binge the entire series right away. This is the kind of thing we do a lot for our supporters. This is the kind of thing that we will do a lot more of if you become a supporter and fund our work. Please go to canadaland.com join or click the link in the show notes to become a supporter or to increase your support if you are already a Canada Land supporter. Let's listen to The Newfoundlander. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Catherine Chen, Philip Lichty, Lauren Purdy, Ali Sajun, Golan Pavlovic, Eric Melbuff, Chris DeForest, and this crowdfunding month, we have asked some people if they think Canada would be better or worse if not for Canada land. And one person we asked is John Fraser, the former master of Massey College, who's currently running Canada's National News Media Council. Is Canada better or worse off because of Canada land? Short answer is yes. It's a lot better off. Canada land knows how to rattle the cages. They know how to bang at doors. They know how to afflict the comfortable. And they do it in an original and often humorous and sometimes deadly way. We can never get enough of that in this country. And there has been such stress on the old-fashioned heritage media that having Canada land has actually made a tangible difference, particularly in a number of important stories. And the integrity of Canada land is solid. I'm at a production of the hit Broadway musical, Come From Away. Only not on Broadway, but in Montreal, where my mother and father-in-law live. It's 2019, and they're treating my partner and I to an evening out. We're seated, waiting for the lights to dim and the curtains to rise. I'm excited. The play is about my hometown, Gander, Newfoundland, and its people, and their response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks when thousands of passengers were diverted there. The people of Gander turned schools into makeshift accommodations and rallied to provide their stranded and terrified visitors with food, clothing, and shelter. Then, partway through the play, a scene that will change my life. An elderly man hunched over and slowly walks across the stage and sits down face to face with a rabbi, one of the people who has come from away to find temporary refuge in Newfoundland. There's a man here in town. He's lived here almost his entire life. Uh, When he heard that there was a rabbi diverted here, he came to find me to tell me his story. I was born in Poland, I think. And my parents, they were Jews. They sent me here before the war started. I still remember some prayers they taught me. 
As a boy, I was told I should never tell anyone I was Jewish, even my wife. But after what happened on Tuesday, so many stories gone just like that. I needed to tell someone. It's a powerful scene. A rabbi finds himself face to face with a Holocaust survivor in hiding. A survivor who chooses this moment to reveal himself. That man? He's my grandfather. Pop, who I knew very well, who I'd fished and trapped with, who let me drive a quad for the first time when I was eight, whose jubilant smile and laughter are ingrained in my memories of him. Memories I've cherished since he died in 2008. My grandfather, who I thought had hailed from a long line of breaks from the Bay of Islands on Newfoundland's west coast, not from Poland, and not a Holocaust survivor. If it's true that my grandfather was Polish and Jewish, well, that would contradict everything I grew up believing about who my family is and where we come from. I'm a Newfoundlander. I was born in Gander 42 years ago, two days before Christmas. My father joined the Mounties and they moved us around. First to Oshawa, Ontario, then Saskatchewan, then Ottawa. As a child, I intuitively knew Newfoundland was home and that we simply lived away. Like everyone else on both sides of my family, I was a Newfoundlander. I never questioned that. Gander was an airport before it was a town. The Newfoundland airport opened in 1938, on the eve of World War II, back before Newfoundland was a part of Canada, when it was still a British dominion. It was one of the world's largest airports, strategically placed on the shortest route between London and New York, where Canadian, British and American military aircraft could refuel before crossing the Atlantic Ocean. That's how Gander came to be known as the crossroads of the world. Over the years, the airport serviced commercial aircrafts heading overseas, but as technology evolved, the traffic tapered off. Then, in 2001, 9-11 put Gander back on the map. This just in, that is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Thousands of stranded passengers. Their planes were diverted here after the attacks. A quarter of those passengers are in Newfoundland. The province is a little overwhelmed. Residents turned their homes, churches, and schools into makeshift accommodations for 7,000 stranded travelers. They shared everything they could. Food, linens, clothing. My family took people in, cooked for them, shared stories, built friendships. The town's response to 9-11 made headlines, an example of the light that can shine through even when the darkness engulfs us. Besides giving rise to a Broadway musical, Gander's response to 9-11 also inspired a movie and a book called The Day the World Came to Town. The musical Come From Away is inspired by it, and it's in that book where my grandfather's story first appeared, 
The story that he hid his true identity from me and from everyone else and his family for his whole life, until revealing it to a visiting rabbi. I need answers to the questions about where my family comes from. Because if I don't know that, I don't feel like I can have the knowledge to understand who I am and what it is that I'm supposed to pass on to my children. And there's one obvious person to start with, the rabbi. The rabbi's name is Levi Sudak. I learned that he's been telling the story of his encounter with my grandfather for years. Here he is in 2020, speaking to an audience in England about my pop, Edward Brake, and revealing new details that can't be found in the book or the play. Ed asked me, please, take your finger and run it down the back of my head. And I could feel indents in the skull where he'd been thwacked. The war came. Business in England was tough. It seemed that there was a business opportunity in Newfoundland, and Ed's parents, new parents, migrated to Newfoundland. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Before Pop died, when he was in palliative care, I did try to ask him about his past. He changed the subject, and I dropped it. But Rabbi Sudak? He had a whole bunch of stuff I'd never heard. So, I emailed him. And he called me right away. So, the story begins in Berlin in the 1930s, when the Nazis came to power. Your great-grandparents lived in, in the city and were recognized as Jews. And the young Nazis would come around to the Jewish homes every evening and pick up one or two of the children and march them off to the local school and bring them into the gymnasium. Now, the floor of the gymnasium, your grandfather said, had a pug floor. I gather that's cork. And the children were made to take off their shoes and their socks. On the wall around the gymnasium, there were nails banged into the wall at around shoulder height. And these Nazis would tie strings to the big toes of the children and make them crawl up with their feet up the wall so that just their shoulders and their necks were resting on the floor and would tie those toes of these poor little children to the nails. And the children would lie like this for a long time. If they flinched, a searing pain would shoot through their body. Rabbi Sudak tells me that Pop showed him evidence of this when they met. He took off his shoe and showed him his foot. The rabbi says my Pop's big toe was indeed disfigured, that it sprung out from his foot to the side like an extended thumb. There came a point where Jewish children would be allowed to leave Germany, and that was what was later became known as the Kindertransport. However, your great-grandparents paid a fortune of money that your grandfather and his brother should be adopted by an English family. That's where the name Brake comes from. Your grandfather did not remember his Hebrew name, and he did not remember his birth family name. And the reason for this was that the Brakes would beat 
both children senseless and your grandfather asked me to be a witness and to run my finger down the back of his skull and I could feel the indents. And he said, those indents are from being thwacked with a pole on the back of my head. Any time that we were caught singing a Jewish song or saying anything that sounded like Jewish, they would get thwacked like that on the back of their head. There came a time when the parents, now the adoptive parents of Ed and his brother, decided to move to Newfoundland. And the treatment continued the same way. The treatment continued when they arrived in Newfoundland. What did you, what did you mean by that? The beatings. By their, by their British adoptive parents? Adoptive parents, yes. Tortured as a child by Nazis for being Jewish? And then beaten by my great-grandparents for acting Jewish and for singing Jewish songs? This is all new information to me, but a piece of it hits hard with the force of truth. The abuse. The beatings. I did know about that. And there's another piece I recognize. Back around the time I finished high school, around 1999, my grandparents and all seven of their children happened to be in Gander at the same time for the first time in years. They gathered at my aunt's backyard for just their second family portrait ever. It wasn't until that photo was developed and enlarged that we noticed on the knob of the walking stick my pop was holding was a Star of David. I vaguely remember some remarks within the family about my pop using a walking stick with a symbol of Judaism a religion we knew little about and certainly had no connection to in our very Catholic family. And I saw the cane, beautiful work of wood, and in the knob was carved out very beautifully the Star of David. Your grandfather didn't tell anybody what was special about the cane, and evidently either your father or your uncle or someone exclaimed to your grandfather, Dad, you cannot have that. They're going to find us and they're going to kill us. So this was evidently a fear that was in the hearts of your family members. The Nazis could still raise their ugly heads and do terrible things once again. Which is probably why the story is not told a lot in your family. The rabbi's story is gripping, but I just cannot believe what I'm hearing. If this is all true, then it wasn't just my grandfather who kept secrets. My entire family was in on it, suppressing the truth from the world and from me out of a fear of Nazis emerging in Newfoundland. I had intended to just listen on this call more than speak, but I can't hold it back and I find myself telling Rabbi Sudak that this just doesn't make sense to me. I tell him that I still believe my pop was born in Newfoundland, and that I need to keep digging to get to the truth of all this, and then reconnect with him to sort it all out. But that was the last time we spoke. He'd agreed to talk to me again, but hasn't responded to my messages ever since. But he did keep sharing my pop's story. Only now, I was in it. I have been in touch 
with Ed's grandson. He was very surprised by much of what he had learned through the play and then from me about his grandfather. As far as he was concerned, his grandfather was never in Europe. This is from an interview Rabbi Sudak did with the Canadian Jewish News for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. He's speaking to their host, Ellen Besner. But as far as Mr. Brake's family goes, I think I read that you provided him with a talus and some other Jewish uh, religious artifacts and hoped that he would take them and use them to be buried with them. And was that ever done? Do you know? Because he died in 2008. Sudak explains that when a couple from Gander visited him in London in 2005, he sent back with them some things from my pot. And I sent with them also a talus and a siddha for, for Ed. Ed made a party when he received his Jewish gifts. Ed was very proud to have his Jewish gifts. Ed, when he passed away, asked that these gifts be buried with him in his coffin. And that, I know, was carried out. I have the yarmulke and prayer shawl that Rabbi Sadak sent my pop, so I know they were not buried with him. And I was at the funeral and his wake. I saw his body in his coffin, and I did not see a prayer book in there with him. Combing through my memories of Pop's funeral is painful. It dredges up a memory of the night I learned that he had died. And this part isn't easy for me to share. My father's name is Edward Brake. My middle name is Edward. That name goes back generations in our family. You might be wondering what my father has to say about all this. The thing is, we're estranged, and it has nothing to do with my grandfather. But I will share one anecdote with you. In October 2008, after I'd moved home to Newfoundland, I was in Ottawa visiting my folks for Thanksgiving. The book containing my grandfather's claim to Jewish ancestry, The Day the World Came to Town, had been published already, years earlier in 2002, and my whole family was still trying to come to terms with it. My father didn't believe the Holocaust survivor story, and like most in our family, he didn't really discuss it much. But I wanted to. On that night at my father's place, we talked about Pop, and I mentioned that I was still thinking about the Holocaust survivor story, that part of me thought it might be true. Our conversation quickly turned into a heated argument, and I went to bed upset. When I woke up in the morning, I walked out of the spare room and into the kitchen. My father was already up, holding his coffee with a concerned look on his face. Justin, he said, Pop passed away last night. I paused for a moment, then broke down. We killed him, I yelled, wiping tears from my face. We fucking killed him. Somehow, I thought the previous night's argument had reached my Pop, and in his fragile state, it was the nail in his coffin. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge 
research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And uh, it's available here in Canada. And this time of year, we're all emerging from our, our winter like seclusion and, uh, you know, patio season and, and socializing. And it can be terrifically fun, but it can also create a lot of pressure. And some people get like anxiety, social anxiety from being out too much. What did Iggy Pop say about social life? It's torture dressed as fun. It doesn't need to be torture. I think it's just about finding like the right balance uh, of, of how much of other people do you want? I mean, we need each other, but I think that at a certain point it can become overwhelming and talking to somebody about yourself, about your social life, about your relationships um, is a way of gaining insight into what is right for you. It's not selfish to examine that with a professional. And as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Listeners of the show get 10% off of their first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's better H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. The only person I really feel comfortable speaking about all this with is my godmother, my aunt, Anne-Marie the person I'm closest to on my father's side of the family. She had a special bond with Pop and knew him the best. She took care of him right up to the day he died. It's October 2022, and the vast, hilly landscape around Gander Lake looks like one of those realist paintings of a perfect fall scene with bright yellows, oranges, and reds. I try to be out here because I find it's a nice place to just meditate and... You know, just think and kind of, I don't know. I feel close to mom and dad out here. And I feel Anne-Marie and I are sitting on a cemetery bench next to my grandparents' graves in Gander. She remembers the moment in 2003 when she first picked up a copy of the book The Day the World Came to Town. It was written by American journalist Jim DeFeedy. So I went to a book stand and found it and found the pages. And I was like, oh my heavens, I can't believe this. Oh my and I just didn't know what to think. It felt like everyone in Gander had read the book. When people read the story, they would approach you and they would tell you, oh my goodness, Anne-Marie, I read the book, I read your father's story, oh my goodness, I'd love to chat with him about it. And they would just be going on and on and on. So I didn't have to say a word. So I didn't confirm or deny. Because I was still processing it myself and I didn't know how to react to it. But I remember this one person in particular, I went to school with this woman, and we were good friends, and uh, we were in uh, a retail outlet, and she came up to me and uh, she said, Anne-Marie, I read about your dad. And I just kind of nodded my head, and because I only nodded my head and I didn't respond, she grabbed my arm and she squeezed it really tight. She said, you don't believe him. You're one of the ones that don't believe him. You should be ashamed of yourself. And she proceeded to call me out on it and tell me off. So I still never said anything. I just let her go on. And, um, you know, eventually it was over. 
And, you know, that conversation was very uncomfortable, to say the least. Before we go on, I should tell you who I always understood my grandfather to be, before the book and the play complicated and challenged all of it. Poppy, or Pop as we say here in Newfoundland, was born and raised in Cornerbrook, on the banks of an estuary where the Humber River empties into a fjord in the Bay of Islands, on Newfoundland's west coast. He had brothers and sisters, some of whom I met as a kid. His father died when he was just seven years old, and his mother remarried. My grandmother, or Nan, was the daughter of a lighthouse keeper from the Northern Peninsula. She and my pop met in Cornerbrook, got married, and started their family there. In 1961, they moved to the bustling new town of Gander a few hours away. Pop took a job as a salesman at Eaton's department store. He was so good at dealing with people and selling stuff that he later opened his own appliance and furniture warehouse. Whenever we'd go home, he'd take us to his cabin, out fishing in the summer, snaring rabbits in the winter. He didn't handle stress well, and I recall a few of his arguments with family members. He shouted sometimes, but he never hit. He also never directed anger at me or any of his grandchildren. I always felt safe and loved with him. He was also diabetic. When I was with him, he'd wince and gasp as he poked his finger to draw blood. Then he'd look up and chuckle when he saw the concern on my face. He taught me to chop and saw wood the old-fashioned way, with a buck saw and an axe. He was in his element in the woods, calm, happy, at peace. But was he? If all that time he was hiding a secret about who he really was and everything he had endured, because he was terrified that it could all happen again, well, if that was the case, then my whole understanding of him is a lie. If I can't speak again to Rabbi Sudak, I figure I might learn more from the people who made my grandfather famous. Irene Sankoff and David Hine, the married writing duo who created Come From Away, a huge hit that scored them nominations for both a Tony and a Grammy Award. According to their website, they're now writing a screenplay to turn Come From Away into a movie. What do they know about my grandfather's origins that I don't? Your grandfather was very, very popular. Everyone told us about him. I, and now I'm hearing about yeah the, the turbulence in the story, and I'm like, oh my goodness, that, that must have been hard, but such respect. And by the 10th anniversary, when we traveled out there, uh, obviously he had passed by then, and we were sad that we couldn't meet him. But everyone knew the story, and so many people told us the story that uh, we could tell that it, 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 it meant a lot to a, to a lot of people, that there was this connection and this rediscovery of identity and who you were. I think the feeling that came out for us as storytellers in this time when everyone was telling us the stories was how important our stories are and how our identities are tied, are interwoven with the stories that we tell. And so that's why on stage, Eddie, the character of Eddie says, uh, there were so many stories that were lost that day, I, I needed to tell someone. And, and so that was important both to honor the storytellers who were who were sharing so generously with us uh, their experiences but also to uh, to commemorate all the stories that were that had been lost Irene and David are playwrights not journalists they got their information about my grandfather from author Jim Defeaty the reporter who wrote the book the day the world came to town but Jim Defeaty won't give me an interview he does tell me in an email, though, that my pop corroborated the story that Rabbi Sudak had shared with him. 
He always viewed himself as Jewish, and according to my notes, he felt it was time to tell his story and that he'd been bottling it up inside for too long, he told me. There's one other person with first-hand knowledge of all this. A man named Dave Shaw. He was my grandfather's friend, and also the man who approached Rabbi Sadak about this in the first place. As far as I know, he was the only person my pop shared the Holocaust survivor story with before the rabbi heard it. But like Jim DeFeedy and the rabbi, Shaw does not want to do an interview. He said he'll only communicate by email and that he doesn't, quote, want the exposure. He says he asked my pop's permission to share the story with the rabbi, but he also says he wasn't present when Sudak met my grandfather. Last fall, Anne-Marie came to visit me and my family on Newfoundland's west coast. I took them down to Brakes Point, named for my family, and the very spot where, as far as we knew, my pop was born and raised. We sat in my car, and I played my interview with the rabbi for them. Oh, God, it's wild. That's the first time it's... I've heard the story. A lot of it is true, but not that way. And here is where I finally got somewhere closer to the truth. Like when he described the, what was he called, a pug floor, and that meant the dirt floor? The pug floor. The rabbi thought it was the floor of a Berlin gymnasium in which Nazis tortured Jewish children. He thought pug must have meant cork. But this was a dirt floor of a home in Newfoundland, and Marie has seen this place and knows it very well. Like you come down around the house and it's not a basement because it's not dug down. It's a, it's a floor, but it's a dirt floor. Mm -hmm. And it was just like... Wooden. A dirt floor my family never would have seen had it not been for my pop's father becoming ill. My pop was so young when he lost his father. And it's a well-known secret in my family that after my great-grandfather died... Pop's stepfather began abusing him and his siblings. He was abusive to everyone in the family, and I think to my grandmother as well, when I look back on it. It is known throughout the family that he beat the boys terribly. And they probably had broken bones, and maybe it was never attended to properly. I was under the understanding that he didn't beat Dad as badly, because Dad was quick to go and like he learned he knew how to make a dollar and there are details of my pop's holocaust story that bear a striking resemblance to accounts of his childhood in cornerbrook but the part about nazi torture that part's hard to talk about Anne marie remembers the place where the abuse happened you come you come out uh, what i consider front door of the house and it was almost like a little path coming down around the house. And as you're coming down around the side of the house, it's like the bottom of uh, a deck today. It was painted brown. And then you walk around the front, and there was a little door in there, and uh, the door was on these hinges that were almost like a V-shape. You know, And they had big tack-type nails, I guess, in them. And it was like the size of the top of my thumb. And the latch on the door, and then on the inside, not anybody was allowed in there. And I know that because I was in there as a child, up higher where I couldn't reach. There was just like a little piece of wood like that with a nail in the middle. It was nailed on one side so you turn it mm -hmm. back and forth. And it was like a handmade latch. 
And that was put there for a reason, too, so that if there's any children in there, they didn't go out. Mm. The smell was like wood. Everything was dark. But there must have been some sort of a light, like maybe a flashlight or something. On the other wall was all the nails. And they were at different levels. And they were fairly big nails. They, you know, they, like that's why they stood out to me, is that this row of nails across were big. You know, so that's what I saw. I've heard my pop felt responsible for his siblings and the abuse they suffered, and that he never got over the guilt of not being able to protect them. I've also heard that my pop did get the occasional beating, but I don't know for sure. There's something else I haven't told you yet. Not long after 9-11, my pop was diagnosed with dementia. Anne-Marie and my grandmother suspected something was going on, and listening to Anne-Marie describe the house, there are details in my pop's Holocaust story that bear a striking resemblance to that description. It's starting to make sense now, just how this whole story came to exist. Despite their suspicions, I don't think anyone in the family thought that Pop was capable of imagining a story as elaborate as he did. Here we are again, Anne-Marie and I, in the Gander Cemetery last fall. She's telling me about the people in Gander who confronted her after reading Jim DeFeedy's book. Sometimes people are very sympathetic, sometimes they're not. And, you know, I react to it according to how I feel. If I think a person understands dementia then I'll explain it to them. If I think they don't understand it, I really don't answer them. Because, you know, it was Dad's story that he told. I knew that my pop had dementia. Some of my visits with him toward the end were traumatic. Sometimes he was best kind, carrying on as he always did. Other times, he didn't know who I was. I remember once he got really angry with me. He was blind from his diabetes, and he had asked me who I was. I said, it's me, Justin, your first grandchild. He just started shouting, clenched his fist, and took a swing at me. I didn't know how to handle a situation like that, so I pleaded with him not to hit his grandson. Well, he suddenly snapped out of it and started crying. I think that was the first time I ever saw him cry, and I was heartbroken. So, had my pop's dementia set in before 9-11? With the exception of my grandmother, Anne-Marie spent more time with pop than anyone else, and she says he was showing signs of dementia long before he was diagnosed. It hurts me to hear those stories that the rabbi told, because I, I know my father and I knew his dementia very well. And, you know, I can only imagine what Dad was feeling in the confused state of telling that. And I'm convinced even more now after hearing the rabbi that this was all a result of pressure, but also his dementia. And the pressure not coming from the rabbi, but from other forces. She doesn't say his name, but she means Dave Shaw. Emery mentioned several times in our conversations that if only Dave Shaw had told my grandmother he was bringing my pop to see the rabbi, my nan might have asked some questions and heard the story before it was made public, and perhaps she could have intervened. Since that didn't happen, 
our families left to deal with the fallout. But Anne-Marie now has the chance to clear the air. And although these are difficult things to talk about, she's intent on setting the record straight. Some of the things that the rabbi said about the family being together are definitely not true. Uh, we were never, like, all together when Dave Shaw showed up to give him his gift of his walking cane because we didn't know any of the story of the Jewish stuff, so that never happened. Nobody would have embarrassed Dad in front of Dave and said, you can't carry that or you can't use that or anything like that. What we probably would have done was we probably would have got Dave away from Dad somewhere and said, Dave, do you realize Dad has dementia? You know, one of the reasons why the rabbi seemed so convinced was because of the wounds. I remember Dad's head, like, many times I massaged Dad's neck from his shoulders and all that, especially in his, in his last years when he was sick. And I never felt anything out of the ordinary on Dad's neck or his head. So I just think that's wrong. It's the same thing about the toe story. I mean, we all know that Dad carried on about his toe for years and years and years with the children, and he used to talk about his big toe. Dad had a big toe. I mean, no two ways about it. I have a big toe, too. But when the rabbi was describing how it extended like a thumb, there's no way Dad's toe came off his foot like that. So there's something wrong in that part of the story. And was his was his big toe, uh, regardless of how it extended, was it me. the way it was because of abuse from childhood? I do believe the part of the story about um, the children being extended by their feet uh, on the nails, because I remember that story. I remember, like, Dad didn't talk a whole lot about the abuse, but I remember a story about him and his brothers being uh, tied upside down by their feet. But he said feet back in the day when I heard it. And it was him and his brothers. So he could probably have had some kind of damage to his foot and toes because of that. But it wasn't from, you know, the Nazis. Mm -hmm. You can look at Dad and look at all of his brothers and sisters. There's no mistaking that they are family. Like, you just go through the generations. And not just because we look alike, but Dad actually has a birth certificate, you know. And it's just... The other story just seems... I'm not saying that it hasn't happened to people. Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is that Dad did have all kinds of things happen in his life, all kinds of trauma. Here's my Uncle Greg, Anne-Marie's husband. He worked for my pop for years looked up to him like a father, and had a pretty good son-in-law, father-in-law relationship. And then he looked after my pop in his final years. Ed was a storyteller. We all know that. He was really good at children's stories, rhymes, all kinds of things. He was, he was an amazing storyteller. And I think as he got older, dementia, something happened that he told a story, and then the wrong people got a hold of it. Not the wrong people, but this story then became real life or something. I don't know. I, I can't say exactly, but then he he didn't he couldn't get out of it. Whatever I, I know that's the wrong term, but there something happened that it just went from a storytelling to real life. I wanted more evidence, so I went to Newfoundland and Labrador's provincial archives in St. John's. So here they are. There's not much to it. It's done by date, surnames, names of child. Perfect. This is for your grandfather, right? Yeah. Yep. And 
and I found something. Okay. Break. Where? Right there. That's him. There it is. Humbermouth, railway employee, loader, William Elizabeth, Edward John, break. Uh, date of birth, May 12th. That's it. May 12th, 36. Okay, I gotta take a picture of this. Proof of my grandfather's birth and baptism in old church records on microfilm. So let's add up the evidence that Pop was born in Newfoundland and not Germany or Poland. There's a government-issued birth certificate and church records of his birth and baptism. An uncanny family resemblance between Pop and my great-grandparents. And living relatives who knew my Pop most of his life and who have no recollection of a single detail supporting the idea that he came over from Europe. No accent, no beatings for acting Jewish, none of it. I also visited my pop's only living sibling, who asked not to be named. She says she was not witness to any abuse and is incredulous to the whole Holocaust survivor story. Some years later, I was informed that your grandfather had passed away and that he'd been buried with his Jewish gifts. Does any of this ring true with you? It's, um... It's really difficult to that reality or that possibility has been flatly rejected by all members of the family that I know. I told Rabbi Sudak my family doesn't have any evidence to substantiate the Holocaust survivor story. I also told him we do have ample evidence that he was born and raised in Newfoundland. I also shared stories of my pop from my early years told him that Pop was eventually diagnosed with dementia, not long after 9-11. I email Rabbi Sudak with everything I now know. I send him all the proof I've found, that the story Pop told him, a story that he then began telling, the story that's been performed for years on stage on Broadway and around the world, is, for a fact, false. He never replied. The whole time I've been doing this research, a few questions have been on my mind. Does any of this even matter? Why bother setting the record straight? Why not just let people believe the story? After all, it's a story that had a positive impact on Rabbi Sudak and on thousands of people around the world, even on the people of Gander. And why raise any doubts about a story that involves the Holocaust Couldn't that kind of debunking fuel the worst kinds of racist historical denial? On the other hand, if we don't share our individual truths before we die, well, that information could be lost forever. In the play, Pop's character says, So many stories gone, just like that. I needed to tell someone. That's exactly how I feel, because the story of who my family is and where we come from That story has changed. Who we are has changed because of everything I've just told you. Who we are to our neighbors, some of whom have accused us of denying or covering up things we know just aren't true, and who we are to each other. We've each processed Pop's falsehood differently, and that's changed how we relate to each other. Some of those stories aren't mine to tell. But there's something else that's changed about us too. Something I haven't mentioned yet. It has nothing to do with the Holocaust story. 
I'm talking about a whole other narrative about our roots that emerged around the time of my grandfather's death. A narrative that my family is indigenous. Mi'kmaq. I have children, and one day they'll want to know where they come from. I need to learn what I can and document it for them, while I still can, before the truth and the evidence to prove it fade away, and before I fade, like Pop did. Because as I've learned, stories take on lives of their own. And like my grandfather, I need to share what I've learned about our family in my time on Earth. So I need to tell you the true story as best I can, even if people here may not want to hear it. Everyone knows that we have people who have falsified their documents. People were solicited into joining. People who never ever wanted anything to do with it. They were talked into it. You can get this, you get that. When you say there's no proof, I'll say to you, prove to me that she's not. That is not a people. That is just ancestry. That was your Canada Land, Chapter 1 of The Newfoundlander. Supporters of Canada Land can listen to all episodes of this series right now. To become a supporter, go to canadaland.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes. Not only can you listen to the whole series right now, but you'll be helping us pay for the next one. You'll also get premium access to all of our shows, ad-free, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, more than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. We will be publicly releasing the rest of the Newfoundlander to everyone in the weeks to come. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read all of them. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website's canadaland.com. This episode was written and reported by Justin Brake. It was produced by me, Bruce Thorson, and Tristan Capicione. Editorial contributions by Sarah Larniuk. Canada Land's managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Poglese. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. 